The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We are still considering these verses out of this last chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, because... Here, he tells them, is this great fight and conflict in which they will be inevitably engaged. And we and all Christian people are engaged in the same conflict. Now, having looked at it in general, we have come to the point at which we are investigating the problem of what is commonly called demonology. The whole science, the knowledge concerning the various activities of these principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, etc. And I was suggesting last Sunday morning that the most convenient classification of the subject is to take it like this, that they have certain general activities, such as astrology and soothsaying, black magic and things of that kind. Then certain special or unusual activities, such as the phenomena of ghosts, poltergeists, haunted houses, and things that fall into that category. And then we began the consideration last Sunday morning at the end of what is commonly called spiritualism, or which should be called spiritism. And here we suggested is something that should be engaging our most careful attention, especially at a time such as this. We looked at its history, and that in and of itself is interesting. And what struck us, I think, especially was that the recurrence, recrudescence of an interest in this uh, during the last hundred years and more is something which, of course, has been greatly accentuated by the two world wars. You generally get this at a time of crisis, of tension, and of strain, when people are suddenly bereaved and have a natural instinctive desire to know about their loved ones and their fate when they're bewildered and know not what to do nor where to turn. These are the very conditions in which the human race uh, seems instinctively to turn uh, to spiritism. And there is no question at all but that it is extremely popular at this present time. It offers guidance to people. It offers healing to people. It offers an understanding of the future. And as we saw, and still more serious, most serious of all, there are those, even within the Christian church, and in the name of Christianity, who would say and claim and argue that uh, all this is of great help in understanding the scriptures and in understanding the Christian way of salvation. I reminded you of how they say they can now understand what uh, the Bible describes as the appearances of angels in the Old Testament. They claim now to be able to understand the transfiguration, our Lord's miracles, and his resurrection, and things of that kind. Very well. 
We can see, therefore, how this matter, this subject, is attracting a great deal of attention at the present time. Now we come to what is most important, of course, from our Christian standpoint. The Apostle tells us that we've got to wrestle against all this. We've got to learn how to stand against it. And therefore, our business this morning is, is to discover how we do so. In other words, what is the answer of the teaching of the Bible and of the Christian gospel to these claims which are put forward in the name of Spiritism? And it seems to me the best approach is something like this. First of all, we do not deny the facts and the phenomena in total. Now, I add that in total. We know that there are many frauds. Many frauds have been demonstrated. I was referring last Sunday morning to the Society for Psychical Research. And they've, uh, throughout the years, investigated many of the claims that have been put forward. And they've been able to prove very satisfactorily that many of them were quite bogus, that they were frauds. But, and this is the point I'm emphasizing, they're not all frauds. They're not all bogus. There is a residuum where the most careful scientific investigation by men who are not spiritists and who do not believe in it, which nevertheless have had to admit that there were certain phenomena which they could not explain. There are healings which have taken place, and it's no use disputing them. They're facts, and it's never a part of Christianity to deny facts. You don't strengthen the Christian case by just dismissing something as being utter rubbish or entirely bogus. That's not Christian. It's not only not scientific, it isn't Christian. Christianity faces facts. It doesn't care where they come from. Science or something like this or whatever else it may be. We must never base our position upon obscurantism, upon a refusal to face well-attested facts. Now, I'm saying facts, not theory, you observe. Very well, so we don't uh, deny and dispute all the facts. Indeed, the Bible itself grants that uh, such fa facts and phenomena may very well be produced and are produced. Take, for instance, our Lord's own statement in Matthew 24, 24. He says, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, that's a very strong statement. Our Lord warns us against such possibilities, that these lying spirits will be able to perform such amazing wonders, that even the very elect of God themselves may be tempted to believe. And, of course, going back to the Old Testament, you remember those magicians of Egypt who were able to reproduce up to a point the things that were done by Moses. Paul reminds Timothy of that, where he reminds him how Jannies and Jambres withstood Moses, and that Timothy mustn't be surprised at such oppositions and such manifestations in his own time. Very well. I think this is clear, that it's no part of our case to dispute the facts. Strange things can happen. Extraordinary things can happen. And they do happen. Very well. We accept that some of the facts and the phenomena are genuine and are true. So I go to a second point, which is the leading to the important one. What is the value of these facts, therefore? And here again, I think it's important that we should be clear in our thinking. 
Is there any value to these facts? I suggest there is a very real value. What is it? Well, it is a proof of the reality of the spiritual realm. There is no doubt about that. So up to that point, we can say that these facts and phenomena are of value. They demonstrate that there are unseen powers that are able to do marvelous things, that are able to influence persons, able to influence the body, able to produce phenomena, even to do things to inanimate objects. There is no doubt about that. Very well then, up to that point, they demonstrate the reality of these principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. But now let's be careful. A true Christian has no need of these proofs. He already believes in that realm. He believes it on the testimony of the scripture. So he doesn't need the proofs. But though he doesn't need them, he can recognize them. And as far as they go, they are of value. Look at it like this. Until comparatively recently, the prevailing controlling view of the whole of life in this and in most uh, civilized countries, was a purely materialistic view that had become popular towards the end of the last century and persisted in this present century. They didn't believe in a spiritual realm at all. Everything was material, and everything could be explained in material terms. The atom was the ultimate piece of matter. There was nothing smaller. There it was. It was solid. It was matter. Now that was the controlling view. And the whole of the spiritual realm was entirely excluded. Now, these facts and phenomena produced by spiritism were of great value in countering such a materialistic view. It doesn't mean to say that what they teach is right, but at any rate they were saying this, there is a spiritual realm. You are wrong in saying that all is material and that there's nothing else. They said there is another realm which we can't see, but which is real and can influence this realm. This is, of course, not so necessary today because that old materialism is gone. They find by now that their atom is a hive of very great activity and of power. And now they're almost spiritualizing everything. Everything is force and movement and energy. However, the value then of these facts and phenomena is that they do help to attest a belief in the unseen spiritual realm, the realm of spirits. But we go on to the third point, which is again leading us still more directly to the heart of the matter. What is the explanation of the facts? Now here we come to the dividing line. We've accepted the facts. We have seen as Christians that we can agree with the spiritists in saying that there is a spiritual realm and that there are powers and forces beyond us, beyond our understanding, which are able to influence life in this world in this way. But now then, what is the explanation of the facts and the phenomena? This is where we as Christians become most concerned. And the answer seems to me to be something like this. We start with the great fact of the biblical condemnation of this without any reservations. The Bible condemns spiritism altogether and in its entirety. Now, we had an illustration of that at the beginning when I read from 1 Samuel 
chapter 28. Let me mention the two important verses. The third verse, which reads, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. Now, and Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Here is the first king of Israel, Saul, called of God and anointed. And that was one of his first actions, to put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And you get it repeated in the uh, words of the witch of Endor, so-called in the ninth verse. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die. Now there is one striking example of this. But let's come to another one, which is perhaps still more interesting. Later on, there was a king, a very good king, whose name was Josiah. And Josiah came after a very evil time in the history of this people of Israel. And he suddenly was awakened to the evil of the time. And he began to do things, and a reformation followed. There was a kind of revival and reformation in the days of Josiah. It is one of the notable re revivals in the story and the history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. You'll find the account of it in the second book of Kings, in chapter 23. But I'm going to read verse 24. 2 Kings 23, 24. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book of Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And then the account goes on to say this about Josiah and like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses? Neither after him arose there any like him. Well, now here is this wonderful king Josiah, this exceptional king. And you see what he does. He clears out all those workers with familiar spirits. There are your spiritists. There are your mediums. It's referred to as abominations that were defiling the land of Israel. Well, that's a very notable uh, testimony, therefore, in the Scripture. But take again the verdict uh, in the first book of Chronicles in chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 on Saul. So Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the law. That was why Saul died as he did. Saul died for his transgression, and that was a part of his transgression, that he consulted that woman of Endor, who was able to manipulate a familiar spirit. It was a part of his downfall and of his condemnation. And then we've got in the book of the prophet Isaiah a very striking condemnation of all this. Isaiah 8, verses 19 and 20. And when they shall say unto you, 
Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now there is the prophet Isaiah, this great prophet Isaiah, commissioned by God and given a revelation and a teaching, and he prohibits and ridicules this very notion of turning to familiar spirits. To the dead, he says, for the living, the thing he says is monstrous. And so he condemns it root and branch. Very well, we deduce from all this that according to the biblical teaching, this is clearly something evil. And it's not only evil, it's degrading, peeping, muttering. There's something ugly and unclean and foul about it. It's an abomination. That's the biblical attitude towards this whole question of consulting spiritists, trying to get a message from the dead, going to a medium or to a meeting where you can get this kind of help for your health or for anything else. It's all unclean. Peeping and muttering, it's an abomination. It's unclean. Very well. The attitude of the Bible and its teaching towards this, it seems to me, is perfectly clear. And of course, for Christian people, that ought to be enough in and of itself. When something is condemned as plainly and as obviously and as explicitly as this is in the Scriptures, a Christian should not even desire to know about it or to con- still less to consult it. Every time you get a new move in the life of Israel, anything in the direction of a reformation and revival, this is excluded. And it is only when somebody like Saul goes wrong and goes astray that in his desperation he again turns back to it. Very well. That, of course, in in addition to that, the fact that this was so rampant amongst the pagan races who dwelt in darkness should, I say, in and of itself, be sufficient for the Christian. But let us go further. Why do you think the Bible thus condemns all this? Why should it be so strong and so clear in its denunciation? And it seems to me that uh, deducing from the biblical teaching in the light of these passages I've read to you, expanding them, if you like, we can arrive at the following answers in terms of principles. Here is the first. This uh, whole activity of spiritists and this attempt to consult uh, spirits is something which is wrong for this reason, that it completely sets revelation on one side. I mean by revelation, this book itself. Take the way in which uh, the prophet Isaiah puts it there in his statement in chapter 8. He says to the law and to the testimony. He says that's not the way to do it. And you had the same thing in the denunciation of Saul in 1 Chronicles 10. It says he uh, was asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it and inquired not of the law. No, the way is that we are to go to the should not a people seek unto their God? 
For the living, to the dead? No, no. To the law and to the testimony. And if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In other words, spiritism puts the whole of the biblical revelation on one side. For here we are given teaching, the teaching that is necessary for the soul, in every respect. That is the business of the Bible, to teach us the truth about God and ourselves, how to live, how to die, the world and the life beyond. It's all here. God's given it. God's given it for us and our instruction. But here is a teaching which says that this isn't enough. This is of no value. They've got to go and seek some light and knowledge and information elsewhere. This is no good for them. They must go and do this other thing that is prohibited. Why? Well, clearly, they're setting the whole of the Bible on one side. And again, I say, that is something that in and of itself is enough to condemn spiritism. Anything that puts God's gracious revelation entirely on one side, is self-condemned. But, again, let's go on and analyze that still more closely. It not only sets the whole of this revelation on one side, it denies the teaching of the revelation, in particular. You see, it's wrong in principle. It's wrong in practice, in details. What do I mean? Well, take, for instance, the teaching which we've got in the scriptures about angels. Good angels and bad angels. And all about these principalities and powers. The teaching of spiritism denies that completely. They're only interested in the spirits of the departed dead. And they would explain what the Bible calls angels in terms of these appearances of the spirits of the departed dead. They don't recognize the biblical teaching concerning these great spiritual powers and forces and factors. And that in itself is again a very serious thing. You see, they explain it all in terms of the activity, as I'm saying, of the spirits of the departed dead. And don't go beyond it, but still more serious. It is when you come to their attitude towards our blessed Lord himself that the matter becomes quite impossible for a Christian. As I was indicating last Sunday to them, our Lord was just uh, one of those outstanding geniuses in this matter of sensitivity to the spiritual realm. He was, if you like, the supreme medium. And so they claim that his miracles of healing were but uh, the uh, works of one who was in such contact with this unseen realm of these spirits, that he was so sensitive and so much in control and could get into that control that he was able to exercise these functions. They say there are spiritualist healers today, and you read about them in the papers, and you see how they claim to heal people in large numbers and so on. Well, this our Lord did that to a still greater extent. He is the almost perfect, if not the perfect, medium. And so, his miracles are not explained as the Bible explains them, as signs of his deity and of his unique belonging to the Godhead. It's all brought down to this human level. He's made just a man, though a very exceptional man. His uniqueness goes. Now, the Gospel according to St. John, you remember, always refers to the miracles as signs. This sign did he. 
And our Lord himself taught that. He said to the people one day, though ye believe not me, believe the works. He says, these works are proving who I am. You keep on asking me who I am, and you don't believe in me. Well, if you don't believe my words, why not believe my works? Look at what I'm doing. Even when John the Baptist was in trouble and sent his two disciples to ask our Lord, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? You remember the answer? Go back and tell John again the things that ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are made to hear, the dead are raised. Ask him to consider the significance of that. The facts, the miracles, are attestations of the fact that he is the Son of God. But you see, this other teaching makes him nothing but the supreme medium. And, of course, it's the same exactly with his resurrection. You remember how I pointed out to you that this teaching is that our Lord's resurrection, they say, was something that falls into the category of the materialization of these uh, spirits that appear at times. They claim that some of these mediums have power to cause this materialization, as it were, of spirits. So you get these spirits of the departed dead uh, appearing in, in some form, not real, but uh, in some kind of appearance, these materializations. And they explain our Lord's resurrection in those terms. But you see, our Lord himself has dealt with this. In the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, this is what we read. In verse 36, And as they thus spake, these were the disciples in the upper room, with the doors and everything shut, because they were afraid of the Jews. As they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. A spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now there is our Lord's specific denial of this very thing that they say about him. He says, I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost. Look at me, he says, handle me, see. It is I myself, a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Why do these thoughts arise in your head? Behold my hands and my feet, and so And so, you see, they rob the resurrection of its uniqueness and of its supreme glory. He literally rose in the body. This isn't a spirit appearance. The body was glorified, it was changed, but it's still essentially the same body. It isn't the materialization of his spirit only. That is the lie. That's the contradiction of the resurrection. And as the Apostle Paul says, If Christ be not risen from the dead, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. And you are of all men most miserable. But it not only violates the teaching with regard to that, and many other matters, it violates the teaching also with regard to the way of salvation. How is the world to be evangelized? How are men and women to be brought to live the right life? Well, the teaching of this cult is, you see, that all oh, people must know about this other realm and uh, we can be in contact with it and uh, we'll get help from it. That's the way, they say, to conquer the problems of life. That's the way of salvation. Well, of course, that was exactly the way of salvation 
that was believed in by that man Dives. You remember our Lord's teaching about Dives and Lazarus in the 16th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Here is Lazarus in hell, and this is what he says. I pray thee therefore, Father Abram, that thou wouldest send him, that's to say Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abram saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You see, the argument, Dives' argument is this. Oh, if a spirit appears from the, the other realm and goes back and tells people, then they'll believe and they'll be helped. No, no, says Abram, that's not God's way. They've got Moses and the prophets. That's God's way. You see, this teaching entirely excludes God's way of salvation. It offers another way of salvation. What God has provided is inadequate. You have to turn to this. Not only is it condemned, I say, explicitly in the teaching of the scripture, it must be condemned. For it is a denial of God's own way of salvation. Law, prophets, Christ, and his great and wonderful salvation. And then, lastly, under this heading, it denies the biblical teaching altogether with regard to hell and eternal punishment and God's retribution upon the ungodly. You read what these people report about the future realm, and they'll tell you that it's very much like this. They still go on there doing the same thing, drinking their whiskey, smoking, playing cards. There's no heaven and hell. Oh, it's just the continuation of this. So they say, don't be frightened of death, it's all right. You've just gone, but it's much nicer there, it's much better, it's much happier. That's the teaching, isn't it? And alas, poor, benighted, bemused souls, believe it and accept it. But the biblical doctrine says that there's a great division. Heaven and hell. With God in glory, or else suffering and everlasting destruction. There is nothing that's right about this teaching. It is altogether opposed to God and everything that he has done for mankind in his infinite grace and kindness and compassion. It lulls people into a false sense of security and of peace and robs them of a true concern about their souls and their final salvation. Very well. But come, let me take you a third heading as to why it must thus be condemned. It not only sets revelation on one side and denies its teaching in detail, it is clearly, according to this teaching, the work of evil spirits. It is not the spirits of our departed loved ones. It is these evil spirits, these principalities and powers, these rulers of the darkness of this world, this spiritual wickedness in high places. People think they're talking to their own departed dead. They're not according to the Bible. It is these evil spirits that are impersonating. And they're able to do so. They've got very great power. They can, as it were, materialize themselves. And they have such knowledge. We've dealt with that in detail. The knowledge and the ability of the devil and these powers. Look here, says Paul. You're not up against flesh and blood. You are against terrible powers who are great in knowledge and understanding and power. And they're able to impersonate. They know the facts. 
And therefore they can imprison it with the object of deluding these poor benighted souls. But here I imagine somebody putting an objection to me. The spirit is certainly well. They say, now you're making a sweeping statement and saying that these are evil spirits impersonating the departed dead. What about that very case you read of at the beginning? Saul consulting the woman of Endor. And Samuel, Samuel himself, literally appearing. Now they say, isn't this the whole case for spiritism? Saul went to consult the woman and she said, whom would you like? And he said, I'd like Samuel. And so she, as it were, as a medium, was able to call up Samuel. Isn't that an absolute proof of spiritism? The answer is, of course, that that particular case is one of the strongest denunciations of spiritism that you get anywhere in the Bible. How? Well, like this. Doesn't the record make it abundantly plain and clear that the woman of Endor did not call up Samuel? That Samuel came in spite of her. She was no doubt on the point of calling up Samuel. As Saul was asking her to do. But listen to the account. Then said the woman, verse 11, in 1 Samuel 28, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. Then immediately, listen. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice, and the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid. Now then, there's only one explanation of that. The woman was no doubt on the point of trying, as she thought, to call up Samuel. But before she has an opportunity of doing anything, Samuel appears. And the woman is alarmed and amazed. Why? Well, because she'd done nothing. She had done nothing. Samuel suddenly appears and she's filled with terror. She cried with a loud voice. She's lost control of herself. Normally, when she did this kind of thing, she was in control. And she didn't cry with a loud voice. She wasn't frightened and alarmed. No, no. She was in control of the whole situation. But something's happened. And she sees Samuel and she's terrified. She's never seen anything like this before. And then, of course, we have in addition to that... So Samuel's condemnation of the whole thing. What is happening here? Well, what is happening here, you see, is this. God is correcting and punishing King Saul for even attempting such a thing. Here something happened which is unusual and quite exceptional. God gives this appearance of Samuel in order to condemn this whole thing which he had already condemned even through Saul himself. So far from being a case of the exercise of spiritualistic power, it is nothing of the kind. And the woman herself is overwhelmed and terrified because of the action of God himself in condemnation of the very trade that she was following. And of course you can put with that the case of the transfiguration. People may ask, but surely on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elias appear and spoke to our Lord and the disciples recognized them. And that, of course, is perfectly true. Well, then, says somebody, doesn't that substantiate the case? The answer once more is this, that there was no spiritualistic procedure at all. Our Lord did not stand there and say, now I'm going to call up Moses and Elias. That isn't what we are told. 
We are told that they appeared, and of course it is one of the most unique events in the whole of our Lord's earthly life and course. He himself was transfigured before them. This extraordinary thing happened to him. And then Moses and Elias come. Why? As the representatives of the law and the prophets. And what were they doing? Well, we are told that they were discussing with him the exodus that he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They were discussing his death with him. It was this great crisis in his life. It's a great bit of teaching, of course. It all suddenly comes together. Here is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. And they're with him. And he is going to do this work. It is one of the vital, significant events in connection with our Lord's death. It has nothing to do with spiritism at all. And its effect, of course, upon the disciples is a further and a final proof of that. The whole place was overshadowed by the glory of God. Nothing can be more different from a spiritualistic seance than just that. It's the exact, the extreme opposite. Very well then, there are some of the reasons, and I would add one final reason, which is this. That you will find invariably that people who hold to spiritism never glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm speaking plainly. You look at the names of men who belong to the Christian church, as they claim, who are interested in this kind of thing. Examine their views of the deity of Christ. Ask their views on the virgin birth. Ask their views on miracles. Ask their views on the meaning of his death and the atonement. Ask their views on the literal physical resurrection. They never glorify him. Never. It's a significant and an interesting thing. It is when people depart from the faith, they begin to believe in this kind of thing. And then examine the life of many of these mediums. I don't know them all, but I've known some of them, and I've known one in particular who became a Christian. And I want to quote the phrase that that woman used. Here was a woman who made her living as a spiritual, spiritist medium, earning her three guineas almost every Sunday night in doing this kind of thing. One Sunday she was unable, because of slight illness, to go and do what she normally did and was seated in her house. And she saw people walking to a place of worship. And quite suddenly she felt, well, what if I went in there? I wonder what they do there. I wonder what that place is like in comparison with what we do. So she went to that place of worship. And that led to her conversion. She never again did what she'd been doing before. But the phrase I want to quote you is this. This is what she said. I said, what did you feel like when you came to this service? Well, she said, it was the thing that really convinced me and finally convicted me. She said, when I came into this place, I felt immediately, she said, that there was spiritual power here, exactly as we have in our meetings. She said, I'm always conscious of power in our meetings. I was conscious, she said, of power in your meeting. But she said, there was one great difference. The power, she said, in this building here, in some indefinable way, seemed to me to be clean. She said, I didn't think of it. I wasn't reasoning. I was just conscious of power and of cleanliness and of purity, such as I'd never known before. That's it. It is unclean. And you will often find that these people who dabble in this kind of thing, and especially these mediums, are immoral and loose in their living. And they often go down and have mental breakdowns and various other things. It's unclean. It's not the spirits of the departed dead. It is evil spirits impersonating. But come to the last argument of all. 
Why must this be condemned? Here is my fourth reason. It is because it is lack of trust in God, I say, and in his way of salvation. Now I want to elaborate this in headings only. Why do people do this sort of thing? Why do they rush to a medium or go to a spiritist meeting or try to do these various other things? Do you know why it is? Here's the answer. It's lack of trust in God and in his goodness. They're not ready to leave their lives and their destiny in the hands of God. They want to take charge. They want to know. It is a fundamental lack of trust and of faith in God. The Christian speaks like this. My times are in thy hands. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul I leave entirely to thy care. But these people don't do that. They want to know what's happening to my loved one. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? You see, this is a denial of God and his goodness. My times are in thy hands. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. And the hymn we've just been singing, Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. These people, I say, have no, no trust in God. Neither have they any faith in his ability to help. They say they want guidance. Well, doesn't God offer to guide? Why go to the dead for the living? Why not seek your God, says Isaiah and the first chronicles? To the law and to the testimony. God offers guidance. But it's not enough for these people. They have to go to familiar spirits. Do you need wisdom? That's why they go. They want wisdom, want to know what to do. But the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He giveth liberally and upbraideth not. All the wisdom you can ever need, God offers to give it all. Health, same thing. I am the God that healeth thee. That was one of the names he gave to himself, to the children of Israel of old. Do you want comfort? Oh, that's why people go to these mediums, to these spiritist meetings. They want comfort. Why do they go there? Because they know nothing about the comfort and the consolation of the scriptures. Because they know nothing of the glorious comfort that is given here and by the Spirit who has been sent to be our comforter. That's his name. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. Then they want to know about the future life. So they go and consult the dead. That isn't the way the Apostle Paul looked to the future, was it? His way was this. What's death? Ah, he says, it's to be with Christ which is far better. Do you want to know the future? Well, read your Bible and learn about the blessed hope that awaits you. The coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, your very body glorified like unto his glorious body. We shall see him as he is and be like him. What more do you want? But these people, they brush it all aside. They go and consult the dead about the living. Can't you see that it's a denial of everything that we hold dear. It's a denial of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's a denial of the Father's providential care and of his love. Ah, oh, people say, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to turn. Listen, my friend, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Isn't that enough for you? What more do you need? God, your heavenly Father, in his providential care, he knows all about you. He's counted the very hairs of your head. 
Nothing can happen to you apart from him if he so cares for the lilies and the birds of the earth. How much more for you? That's our Lord's teaching. It's a denial of the Father and his providential care and love. It's a denial of the sufficiency and of the grace of the indwelling Son, our blessed Lord and Savior. I want strength. I want guidance. I want healing. I want comfort. Listen, says Paul. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And that isn't only St. Paul. Yes, says Charles Wesley, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. These people know nothing about that. They deny the Son. Let me read to you again these glorious words of Wesley. I'm only going to read the first verse because we're going to sing it. Thou hidden source of calm repose, thou all-sufficient love divine, my help and refuge from my foes, secure I am if thou art mine, and lo, from sin and grief and shame, I hide thee, Jesus in my name, Jim, I must go on. Jesus, my all in all, thou art. My rest in toil, my knees in pain, the medicine of my broken heart. In war, my peace, in loss, my gain. My smile beneath the tyrant's frown. In shame, my glory and my crown. In want, my plentiful supply. In weakness, mine almighty power. In bonds, my perfect liberty. My light in Satan's darkest hour. My help and stay whene'er I call. My life in death. My heaven, my all. He's all sufficient. But not for these people. They have to go and consult familiar spirits. For the living to the dead. Oh, the tragedy. They deny the Son and they deny the Holy Spirit in the same way. They know nothing about his communion. They don't say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about it. The guide and the comforter whom our Lord said he was going to send. He said, I shall not leave you comfortless. I shall not leave you orphans. Don't be alarmed, he says, because I say I'm going. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send you someone who will always be with you. He'll be in you, and he'll never leave you. The comfort, the consolation of the Holy Ghost. They know nothing about it. The Christian who turns to this kind of thing is displaying either his total unbelief or else he's so ignorant and uninstructed that he knows nothing of the exceeding riches of God's grace and the unsearchable riches of Christ. No, no, my friends. Resist it steadfast in the faith. This is the work of the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. This is one of the devil's masterpieces, trying to counterfeit the scriptures. And above all, the Son of God. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole panoply, so that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all things, 